Hello ladies and gentlemen this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg show this show is for people who want to live a fulfilled life through mindfulness practices and personal transformation my job on this show is to invite world class performers to share the practices to live a fulfilled life and this episode guest is Dr Beth Kaland PhD Dr Beth is a clinical psychologist TEDx speaker and author of three award winning books Dr. Beth is passionate about teaching mindfulness-informed practices and mind-body strategies to help people cultivate resilience, whole person health, and well-being. She has been providing evidence-based practices to people across the lifespan for over 25 years and has a psychology practice in Norwood, Massachusetts. Beth has given talks and workshops throughout New England and took the TEDx stage in 2019 to share her talk on three tools for change that you have never thought before her blogs appears regularly in psychology today and on psych central and she has been interviewed by cbc canadian broadcast system radio martha stewart living magazine esperanza magazine real simple magazine among others and has been a guest teacher on several wellness summits she is a contributor to insight timer where many of her free meditations can be found as well as on our website bethkerland.com b e t h k u r l a n d.com where she has meditations and other resources please note that information shared by dr beth is for educational purposes only and is not intended in any way as psychological treatment advice or consultation of any kind if you are struggling with mental health issues please seek the treatment of a licensed mental health professional and now let the episode begin beth welcome to the show thank you so much for having me i'm excited to be here my pleasure after going through your profile and there is there's so much thing that i would love to talk about and ask you so many things about your ted talk about your books your clinical psychologist experience and mindfulness there are so many things and we will be going through you know from point a to point b in different directions there is no sequence and we'll be just going all over the place and still making this conversation this podcast inspirational and impactful for our dear listeners great and beth how would your family describe what you do for a living oh interesting question i would say well my my family would would probably i think they would all say that you know just my my main profession is as a clinical psychologist so i work in an outpatient practice seeing patients of all different ages and they might also mention that i am an author and so i've written three books and i also do a lot of public speaking i do workshops So that's another hat that I wear that that I really love. And I guess I would say that that's kind of the main the main focus of my professional life. <laughs> and what what does a clinical psychologist do if and this question is for the listeners who are not sure about clinical psychology. So so clinical psychology is really focused on direct patient care, so working with it, there can be lots of different settings but i work in an outpatient setting so people come into my office and 
they can have a whole range of reasons that bring them in. They might be experiencing anxiety, they might be experiencing depression, they might be experiencing a loss or want help in changing some part of their, their life in some way. And I try to support them in that process. And we will get into anxiety, depression, in all these topics in, in a bit. And so clinical psychology, is it different from normal psychology, if that makes sense? So there's different, psychologists can do different things. Some psychologists, neuro, uh, neuropsychologists can do a neuropsychological testing. So they are trying to understand how really how people think, how, how people's cognitions, what their strengths and their weaknesses are in terms of how they process information. You can have psychologists who are really focused more on research. And there are many wonderful psychologists doing amazing research out there. And many in the, in the area of mindfulness, which is really exciting. I'm sure we'll be talking more about all of that. And so, you know, some psychologists can really focus more on teaching be professors at universities and so forth. So there's lots of lots of hats that we psychologists can wear. But clinical psychology focuses on on that direct patient care in, in the therapeutic setting. And what led you to become a clinical psychologist? And what has been your experience to get here where you are at? Yeah, it, well, I would say when I was young, when I was a really probably fairly small child up through my most of high school i thought i was going to be a writer and that was that was my dream that was what i wanted to do i always loved creative writing i loved writing poetry but then when i was in 11th grade i took a class at my high school that was a social psychology class and one of the things that we did in this class as part of our project was that we got paired with a younger a student at the middle school. So a student who was many years younger than us. And we were supposed to be a kind of a mentor for that student. And we would go and meet with them once a week and just try to support them in whatever challenges they might be having and just really being a listening ear to them. And, and that experience, something about that class, something about that experience really made me say to myself, you know what, I think I really want to go into this field of psychology professionally. And it was really, it tapped into this calling in me. And I really feel like for me, it has been a calling. And, and, it, and from that moment forward, it was really very much a straight path for me. I didn't really waver. I didn't question it. And I just went straight forward through college, studying psychology, and then graduate school, and into this path of, of getting my doctorate and becoming a clinical psychologist. So it's, it's, been, it's been an amazing path for me. I feel like, I, I feel so privileged to be doing something that I love and that I'm so passionate about, and so privileged to be sitting with my patients, you know, hundreds of people over the years in ways that I feel like I learn as much from them as, as I hope they learn from <laughs> me. And this is all about dealing with emotions, with, with patients' emotions. 
Yeah, emotions and, and behaviors as well. And if you were not a clinical psychologist, who do you think you would be now? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, so, so what's interesting is I had this, this dream when I was younger to be a writer. And I've always just had a lot of creative energy inside of me. So I feel like I, I got to this interesting point in my life where I was able to merge both of those dreams. And I don't know if I was, it just feels like I'm so home right now in, in both of those areas that I'm not sure what I would be doing if I, you know, wasn't where I am right now. <laughs> and the lesson, lesson here is for our listeners that doing things that you love, really love and really passionate about. And when you pursue your dreams and goals that you really love, then life can really go to the next level and keeps evolving through that. Yeah, I feel really I feel really grateful that I've found this path and that that it brings me so much joy. Would you like to share any any personal experience that has shaped your life? It can be one experiences, one experience or multiple experiences from your journey. Mm, wow. Well, I guess really the the Thing that stands out the most for me, and I know I've done some writing about this in different ways and, and have shared a, a bit of this in, in my last book, but my when I was 15 years old, my mother died. She was killed in a car accident, and it was really a, you know, a horrific experience to, to go through as, as a teenager just trying to find my way in the world, devastating moment, you know, for, for my family. And, and I feel like that experience has really led me in two different directions that are seemingly dichotomous, but yet have really come together in some ways over the years for me. Wanted to be able to really, from that experience, ask myself, you know, how can I go forward and really find, find the deepest well-being in my life from, from such tragedy? You know, how can I take each of these moments that I have here on earth and make them as precious as possible and really trying to do things that are within my control to help me really appreciate and experience life in, in the fullest way. The other path was really throwing me into this place of, of learning how do I hold my, my darkest emotions and how do I go through this life, which in, in some ways there's so much uncertainty and vulnerability and fragility. How do I hold all of that and, and, and be able to embrace all of these emotions that I might otherwise want to push away to be able to live most fully. And, and I think that those are both two sides of the same coin as I've come to see over time. And the mindfulness piece that I've come to discover through many, many years, I think really brings both of those pieces together, really living in the moment, the preciousness of this 
very moment of life, which is really all we have, and also really offering a way to embrace some of the the darker emotions and to be able to to move through those and to continue to really move forward in this journey of life. This is a very tough experience that you had to go through when you were 15, when your mother passed away. And at that time, how did you motivate yourself and what was your inspiration at that point? And because when at that age, it becomes very difficult for small kids to really see the brighter side in their life. Mm. Ah, you know, there was, there was a moment where I remember my father saying to my, my brother and sister and I, when we knew that my mother wasn't going to, wasn't going to make it, you know, that he said that, you know, just really this thought of dedicating our lives to the kind of people that she would want us to be. So I think there was, there was some piece there of just wanting to find the, the best expression of myself. You know, how could I, how could I do that in this, in this life? And I think at the time, first of all, I, I had either, you know, the support of my, my father, my brother and sister, and, and some very good friends. And, and I think that, you know, family and the friendships were hugely helpful in that, helping me in that time of my life. I think in some ways, I really put away a lot of my deeper grief and, and plowed through. So I was one thing I haven't mentioned, but I think it's, it's relevant and certainly relevant in, in, in terms of my even, you know, coming to write the books that I have is that, you know, I'm, I'm wired very anxious by nature, kind of high stress type A sort of a person. And so, so at that time in my life, I really threw myself into my work, my studies. And I, I, I think it was really not until much later in life that I fully allowed myself to grieve and th- move through some of the deepest pain of that experience. And, and I would say also with the help of some wonderful therapists over the years as well. And this has been a journey in your life and it's a process to really feel those pains and griefs and losses. And uh, this is a very common theme these days when people just, you know, disconnect from their emotions and feelings mm-hmm. and try to escape from that. And in, in, in the pursuit of achieving better things or new things in life, this this is the experience that you just shared that you were not feeling those emotions completely and with the help of therapist and that process through mindfulness practices you have been able to release and let go of all those emotions and really feel through what what had happened in the past yeah and i guess i would say really learning how to hold those emotions in a different way you know that they don't necessarily go away but they there's a transformative process that occurs i think as we learn to relate to our emotions in, in a different way
And speaking of thoughts, you have mentioned in your TED talk that our thoughts may not be the right one. We are thinking our thoughts, these are our thoughts, but how do we know our thoughts are right? How, how, do, we how, do, how do we know our thoughts are right? Whether uh, they are correct or not? That's, well, you know, I'm not, I, that's, it's an interesting question, right? Is, is there an absolute, what is absolute reality? But I, I think, what mindfulness, what mindfulness practice has, has really been helpful for me with is this idea of recognizing that my thoughts are mental constructs, that they are not absolute truth. And so there's an investigation that we can then bring to our thoughts when we can become aware of them. And in that process, we can step back and really ask ourselves, you know, is this true? Is this true for me now in this moment? Is there another way of looking at something? And so I think that the, that curious investigation and bringing awareness to our whole thought process, which is often really outside of the surface of our awareness. We go through our days, we have this, you know, inner dialogue with ourselves all day long and, and much of it we're not really attentive to. So as we can begin to bring awareness to our thought stream, we can begin to ask those questions and that can give us some clarity. What could be those questions? Well, just, just questions about, you know, so when we say things to ourselves, is this, is this really true? You know, is this accurate? Does this fit the current circumstances? Is there, is this distorted? In, in some ways, am I exaggerating something? Am I catastrophizing? Am I, you know, adding something here that maybe doesn't belong? So I think some of those questions we, are helpful when we look at our own thinking. And in, in, I'm not sure, uh, we can sort of get into or not different aspects of, um, some of the things I wrote about in my book, but, but one of the, I talk about five mental habits that we have that we can all get stuck in in different ways. Yeah, we can, we can definitely talk about it, please. And, and well, so I'll bring one in that's relevant here. But th this idea that we, we, our brains evolved over millions of years to help us survive as a species in harsh conditions back in the caves, back in the savannas. And, and some of those, and these mental habits are still playing in the background and sometimes even in the foreground of our minds in ways that can, can kind of cloud over what is really here. And so one example of this, that one of the mental habits that I talk about is what I fondly call the noisy person at the movie theater. <laughs> and so if you imagine that you're sitting in a movie theater and you, you just sat down and you're just trying to enjoy your movie, and all of a sudden this noisy person comes and plops himself next to you and they start giving you a running commentary of the entire movie. Oh my God, did you see that? Oh, that's going to be a disaster. Can you believe what she said? I can't believe, you know, she's going to do that. Oh, this is going to be terrible. And so you've got this, this narrator next to you and you're just trying to enjoy your movie. And it's as if for all of us that we really have this inner dialogue in our own head, these thoughts that run in the background throughout our whole day. And when we really start to pay attention to those thoughts, we can discover that many of them may be inaccurate, distorted, unhelpful, self-critical, which is a huge one. Negative self-talk. Yeah. And, and sometimes just not true. 
And so if we can begin to recognize that we have this noisy person, you know, in the movie theater of our own minds, then we can begin to relate to our thoughts in a different way. And one of the ways that we can shift this relationship is just recognizing that our thoughts really are mental constructs and not absolute truth. They are not the facts. I'm sorry. They, they are not the facts. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Our thoughts are not facts. And if somebody is not connected to their emotions, how they can recognize their thought patterns? Hmm. So, well, I think that one of the tools that I have found most helpful for me personally and, and for, for many people I work with is this, is this tool of mindfulness of really learning how to cultivate this kind of awareness in a different way than we may be used to doing that. We often go through automatic pilot. We, we go through our day on automatic pilot in many ways. We can go through the motions of our day and we're not really paying attention to what's here. And so if we have ways of cultivating this awareness and mindfulness meditation is, is one way, it's not the only way, then we can begin to observe, become the observer of our thoughts and our internal experiences, the physical sensations, the emotions in our body, in a way where we are not so caught in them. But there's a little bit of space, there's a little bit of distance where we can see what's happening. And, and then from that space, we have a little greater choice, a little greater freedom about how we respond to what's there. And you know, I can, I can just give you a, a little example here, something, something just to try in this moment. Even our, the, our language can really shape our experience. So if you say to yourself for a minute, I, I'll say a few phrases to you and then say them in your own head as I say them to you. Um, and then I'm going to change that those phrases just slightly and to see if you notice any difference in the experience. Okay. So the first, Phrases, I'll say three phrases. I'm so anxious. I'm so angry. I'm so stupid. And just imagine saying those in your own mind for a moment. <laughs> okay. <Now. laughs> All right. So now, and notice as you say that, and notice what happens in your body when you say those things. And now I'm going to change the, the wording just slightly. I'm going to add the phrase, I noticed that. So I, I noticed that. I'm experiencing anxiety in my body right now. I notice that anger is present in my body in this moment. I notice that I'm having the thought that I'm so stupid. And as you say those phrases to yourself, see, you know, is there what, what that experience is in your body as you say those things and whether there's anything that shifts or changes from that first round to the second round. It is very powerful. And this practice is just not to be identified with those thoughts. Yeah. Because thoughts are like a guest. We, mm -hmm. we just have to recognize and notice that and not identify with those thoughts. Because we human beings, our mind run on survival mode. And we, we think our thoughts are the facts, but they are not the facts all the time. 95% of the thoughts are coming from the past memories. This is a scientific study from Dr. Joe Dispenza that most uh -huh. of our thoughts are not 
valid. They are coming from our past memories. But we can change our thought patterns. It's like a diet, you know, diet of thoughts that you talk about in your books, in your TED Talk, yeah. and being able to recognize those thoughts and feed good thoughts to your mind. Can you please elaborate some more on this diet of thoughts? Yeah, so I, so in my book, I, I talk about five mental habits that can get in the way of our well-being, but these are mental habits that we all experience. And so one of them that I shared with you is this noisy person at the movie theater. And, and so we can't necessarily, you know, wave a magic wand and get rid of this noisy person at the movie theater. I think that that noisy person is going to continue to show up in different ways because we're human, but we can, we learn, we can learn to relate to those, to this noisy person in a different kind of a way. And so one of the, the tools that I talk about in my book, I share five different tools is what I call the diet. And it's really learning how to feed ourselves a healthier diet of thoughts that often our thoughts are distorted, inaccurate, self-critical. And so how do we make our thoughts more accurate, more specific to the circumstances at hand and more compassionate? And when we can really work on nurturing and feeding ourselves this kind of a diet to make our language, to make our thinking more accurate, to make it connected to what's happening in this moment and and more compassionate, then it really helps us to handle whatever challenges are are out there that we're facing. And and I would emphasize that it's not Pollyanna kind of thinking, you know, this idea of every oh, you know, just saying to yourself, oh, everything's wonderful, everything's great, if that's not truly what you're believing or feeling, but it's about just making the language more accurate and compassionate. So, uh, you know, I'll share an example. Um, if you imagine, you know, something that I think everybody can relate to, this idea of making a mistake, you know, having some kind of a, a setback or doing something that you are upset that you did, you know, I wish I hadn't done that, I wish I hadn't said that, or whatever. And so if we were to feed ourselves maybe an unhealthy diet, how do we how do we relate to that mistake? We might say, you know, I'm so stupid. What's wrong with me? I can't believe I did that. People are going to think terribly of me. You know, I'm a terrible person. I'm a failure, whatever, these kinds of thoughts. If we think about how might we feed ourselves a healthier diet, one that's more accurate, more specific, and more self-compassionate, you know, accurate. So, you know, I'm so stupid. I'm a failure. Those are generalizations. Those are those are, if we really look at those, that's not really true. So we can make our language more accurate. You know, I'm really upset that I made this particular mistake today. I'm feeling a lot of emotions that are coming up around that. So we're acknowledging what's there, but we're doing it in a more accurate way. And then we can say, you know, and I also recognize that there's many times when I do things quite well. And this was one of those where I had a harder time. I had some greater difficulty today. And you have gone deeper into these topics in your book and TED Talk. And you talk about DOOR, D-O-O-R, you know, being aware of your feelings and emotions and instead of pushing them away. Because yeah. we have that emotional discomfort and we are not identified by that. Accepting all those feelings and saying that and talking to your feelings. Can you can you please explain that part? 
Sure. Yeah. So there's kind of, so the diet really helps us with our thinking and, and this noisy person at the movie theater. That's one of these, these mental habits that yeah. I, that I share. So we have another mental habit that I, I refer to as, well, I, I, I call it the finger trap dilemma. And, and if you've seen, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those gag toys where you stick your finger in not. your side <laughs> and, and, and you try to pull, you try to escape, you know, you try to get your fingers out and the harder you pull, the more your fingers actually get stuck in there. And so, well, spoiler alert here, but the way to get out of this little, this little toy, you know, finger trap is to actually push your fingers closer together. It's counterintuitive. And so as you turn inward, as you push your fingers together, it actually releases. And, and the mental habit that I'm really referring to here is this idea that as human beings, we've evolved to seek pleasure and to avoid pain. And for our ancestors, the kind of pain they tried to avoid was physical external pain, you know, being bitten by that lion, maybe eating that poisonous plant that was going to make them sick. But the kind of pain that we often try to escape from in our modern lives is more of that internal pain, our own, you know, physical sensations and emotional pain, right? Those difficult emotions that we don't want to feel. And so what the research has, has shown, you know, in, in recent years, and a lot of the mindfulness research really seems to be supporting this is that the more we try to avoid and suppress our emotions, that can really create sometimes more difficulties for us. And if we can find ways to learn to turn towards our own inner experiences and to, to accept what is there and to work with these feelings, then it can bring us ultimately some, some inner freedom. And that's the idea. So one of the tools that I talk about in my book to work with this finger trap dilemma is what I call the door. And actually, the idea of the door came from my own work with a couple of really wonderful therapists. And it's this idea of, you know, can we learn to open the door and allow whatever is there to come in? And it might be stuff that we don't really, you know, want <laughs> to come in. Um, our own sadness or grief or, you know, frustration or disappointment or whatever, all of those myriad of emotions which are hard to sit with but if we could imagine opening the door and allowing those emotions to come in and then greeting them in a compassionate way holding them in a compassionate space where we can really take a look at what's there and attend to these these deeper parts of us that are hurting it can really help to transform the way we experience these difficulties and this reminds me of one quote from Rumi Jalaluddin that treat every feeling, every emotion as a guest, you know, mm -hmm. guest house. Yes, quote I love that. From Rumi Jalaluddin. And for all the listeners who have not heard about Rumi, he was 13th century Persian poet. And Beth, I would like to ask you that we have this acceptance of emotional discomfort instead of pushing them away. We are talking, communicating to our emotions and really accepting everything what is coming along through mindfulness practices. Mm -hmm. When you 
suggest these practices to your patients or to anybody who you work with? Do you see any resistance or any challenge that why people don't do all these things, even when they know about all these things? Well, first of all, I think it's really important for me to say that every individual is different. Everybody is experiencing, you know, their own personal situations. And, and mindfulness practice may not be for everybody. So I will say that. And this notion of turning towards our own pain and difficulties is something that can be very, very challenging. And it's something, you know, so I'm not suggesting that everybody who's listening just go out and, you know, kind of dive in because I think we have to be very mindful and, and, and careful about how we approach this and when it's right for us. So knowing ourselves for people who might be experiencing, you know, more uh, significant traumas or losses or things like that, I think it, it might um, be especially important to, to be able to do this kind of work with some kind of a mental health professional. So. So I just wanted to, you know, make sure I say that piece. But I think as a whole, as human beings, we are just naturally drawn towards what's feeling good, what, you know, what we want to feel good. And anything that arises that's uncomfortable within us, uh, we, we just have this natural tendency to, to want to avoid or push away. So, so we really have to work to kind of counter that tendency. And, and, and mindfulness practices certainly are, are one very, you know, helpful way, I think, of, of being able to do that. But again, may not be right for everybody. And I think everybody needs to find their path and find, you know, what support they may, may need in order, to, especially in working with some of these more difficult emotions. This is very profound distinction that you just mentioned that mindfulness is great, awesome, but it may not be for everybody. So I would like to ask you if somebody who is going through a lot of loss and grief and if mindfulness is not working for them, then what should they try? I mean, I, I, I definitely have a bias towards therapy. So that's really, I think, my go-to, you know, both personally and professionally, but from my own experiences as well, that I think, you know, really being able to work with a, a mental health professional with some of these harder emotions can be profoundly helpful and transformative. And that, and, and certainly mindfulness is one, path, but is by no means the only path. And, and I certainly don't do mindfulness with all of my patients. You know, it, so it really just depends on what people are open to, what people gravitate to, but there are, you know, all kinds of psychological tools and supports and, and ways that we can work with difficult emotions, M mindfulness just being, you know, one of those. And right now this question is popping up in my head and I'm not sure what could be the difference between mindfulness and psychology or if they are correlated or they are different or they have some similarities, if you can bring some light on that, please. Oh, let's see. I, 
you know, mindfulness, well, in, in some respects, in the Western world, mindfulness is, has become one of the areas of psychology that we are now studying. But, you know, important, of course, to, to say that mindfulness is, is a 2,500 year old, you know, ancient practice that came from, from the Eastern world and from Eastern wisdom traditions. So the, the West has really adopted, you know, t- taken some of those practices and brought them into our, you know, Western culture here. John Kabat-Zinn was one of the, the main, I think, people who really, who really helped do that. He's a professor at, at UMass Medical School. And started the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. So, yeah, my oh, it's a hard question to answer, but I, I'm not sure if I said if it, just touching on a little bit that you know mindfulness, at least in the psychology world, is really an, an area that's growing rapidly in terms of of trying to understand how some of these ancient practices can be helpful to deal with our, our modern day suffering. Yeah, and thanks for explaining and. Uh... Do you have or does any experience from your professional life come to your mind when you were really struggling with any patient? And, uh, you know, if I, if, if I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to explain this question. Any experience that comes to your mind when you really struggle with your patient to get them breakthroughs? Uh, struggling to, can you say it again? Uh, struggling to, Give them the breakthroughs they want and okay. help them. Any, any experience that comes to your mind? I have what, what popped into my mind at first is really, um, a, how do I say, kind of a, a, a mix of a lot of different patients, right? But one of the, the things that I have found that has been most profound in helping people, especially, you know, in working with, some of these, these challenging emotions that we all as human beings experience is when, when we can learn to sit with those emotions and bring compassion to what we're experiencing. And so, you know, I'm thinking of, of, you know, so many patients who have experienced pain and, and, you know, different kinds of trauma, uh, little or big in their lives and, you know, just difficult experiences when they were younger and and we all i think as individuals have our own you know experience with that and and often that pain you know gets pushed down in some ways and when we can learn to really bring self compassion to these these deep parts of ourselves that maybe we have tried to cut off you know some of the 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 shame that people feel around their emotions or around some of these experiences that happened when they were younger and being able to almost the way that i think about it is is imagining the way that you might sit with a child who was let's say you know crying and and was in distress and and the way that a parent or an adult might sit with that child in a loving way and put their arm around that child and just say, I see that you're suffering and I'm here with you and I'm here for you. And when we can learn how to do that for, with our own pain, I, I've seen some of the, the greatest transformations occur. 
And do you feel that the process of journaling can elevate the process of self-compassion? You know, I, I would say from a personal experience, I used to journal, gosh, I think I started a, well, started a journal probably when I was in high school and I, I can't even tell you how many journals I have. <laughs> but it, it, for me, it was a, it was a hugely helpful process to be able to write about and really hold. And in some ways, it almost felt like an experience of mindfulness in, in motion, you know, more in through the writing itself, being able to identify and name what is happening. And then to be able to be able to step back to, to look at it, you know, a little clearer. Again, this is my experience with journaling. And then often by the end, yeah, being able to bring some, some compassion, self-compassion to whatever I was experiencing. And I think from, you know, that many people can find journaling a helpful process in that way. I think again, it's not for everybody, but, but I know that, you know, many people who have found that to be very helpful. And being intentional about journaling, we can journal on some specific questions that are bothering us. And people want to be happy. People want to feel fulfilled. What do you think could be the hard thing to find happiness, according to you? What, what makes it uh, hard, hard to find, find happiness? Hmm. I guess I would go back to these, you know, in some way, the, the first thing that, that comes to mind is some of the ways that we're wired. Some of these, these evolutionary challenges that we have that can, that can get in the way of that. So, you know, when we try to just avoid and escape our, our own internal pain or difficult emotions, we might also miss out on the other side. You know, the, the, the deep joy that we can touch into when we're able to hold all of our experience, right? When we, you know, experience that noisy person at the movie theater, in ways, especially where it comes out as a self-critical voice, you know, a lot of people just really beating, beating themselves up a lot, you know, in, in, in internal ways, being so hard on themselves. And when we believe that voice, when we take that narrative as truth, that can really get in the way of one's, you know, of one's happiness as well. Another mental habit that I haven't talked about yet is what I call the stuck dial. And the stuck dial is, is I have a little kind of visual that I use for this, but if you just imagine that there was kind of two, two dials in one, in one setting, and this, this would be like, and I'm really simplifying the brain science here, but two dials, let's say that we could, we could put, you know, our, our brain on. So one is that we're fully present, alive, alert, engaged right here in this moment. And the other is that we're in this mind-wandering mode. And it turns out uh, that research has shown that we're in this mind-wandering mode a lot of the time. Much of our, much of our day, in fact, uh, up to 50% of our day, one study estimates. And, and when I'm talking about mind-wandering, what I mean is that mental rumination. We're thinking about the past. We're thinking about the future. We're caught up in self-referential thoughts, comparing ourselves to others or what others think of us and that kind of thing. And, and we can get caught in these mental ruminations and, that really take us away from the present moment of, of what's here right now. And, and, 
some studies have shown that when we're present, we're actually the happiest. So as another answer circling back to that question of what gets in the way of our happiness, when we're running on automatic pilot and when we're caught in these, these mental loops in our own mind, then we don't experience the same happiness that's available to us when we're able to touch into these moments of presence in our day-to-day life. And uh, do you have any specific system in your personal life to remind yourself about all these practices? Or it just, it has become a natural thing to you now? Well, you know, I, I am as much um, a student of my own teaching, I think, <laughs> on an ongoing basis as, as maybe, you know, anyone else, that, that I really have to remind myself all the time. And, and, I, do, and, and I don't always remember. Uh, to use my own tools. You know, it's kind of like if you think about the, the toolkit that's sitting in the garage, it's probably not going to do you any good if it's up on a shelf somewhere. So, <laughs> yeah. so I really do have to remind myself all the time, you know, to use my own tools. And, and I'm, I'm fortunate to have some wonderful family members who can also remind me when I forget, you know. Accountability. <laughs> yeah. You need to use one of your tools, Beth. So, but, but I, one thing that I really try to think about is something that one of my meditation teachers has shared, this idea of small moments many times. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be this grandiose thing where, you know, I, I, I have this perfect day or, a, you know, or week or month or whatever, but really, can I just bring moments of awareness, moments of presence into my day? And, and so just remembering to practice using my tools as I go through my day. And it might just be a few minutes here and a few minutes there. And then it may kind of slip away and fall back into some old conditioning, some old patterns, and then come back again. So it's about returning again and again in these small moments of our day that, you know, then we begin to string those together. And this is a constant process and not judging yourself for anything. Yeah. I think that's such a, that's such an important piece is, is really, and that's really one of the foundations of the mindfulness practice is bringing that quality of non-judgment to our experience. And I, and I think, you know, this whole idea of self-compassion is, is one of the aspects of it that Kristen Neff talks about. She's a researcher who's done a lot of work in this area is this idea of common humanity. And so really trying to come back and again and again to, this idea of common humanity that we all on this planet are struggling in, in our own, but similar kinds of ways too. And, and, and we're human and we're going to fall back into our old conditioning. And so it's really just a matter of trying to, uh, remember, you know, waking up, remembering in, in, in any given moment. And, and that and, is, and that is why I'm asking you all these personal questions from your life because we human beings, you know, we, we think that that person is already successful. They are, they are PhDs. They are so successful. They have all these degrees, education backgrounds. So it is easy for them. We don't have all these things. So it may not be easy for us, you know? So that is why I'm, I'm trying to understand your perspective for our listeners. 
Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, when you said that, one of the things that I, I share sometimes when I, when I give talks on, so my, my first book is called The Transformative Power of 10 Minutes, an eight week guide to reducing stress and cultivating well-being. And what I share with, with people when I give a talk on that book is kind of starting out with a little disclaimer to say, you know, that, that I am really a very high stress person by nature. And so I've come to this work very honestly, and, and I continue to have to work at it. I am not a relaxed, laid back, you know, chill kind of person who just lets stress roll off of me. And, and that, you know, tendency continues to come up. It, it, it hasn't disappeared, but it's just that I have more tools to work with it. And over time, you know, that has been really helpful. But, but I, I think it's important for, people to know that, you know, even people, you know, psychologists or whatever, we're human just like everybody else. <laughs> we, we are all humans. Yeah. And can we take a two-minute pause here so that you can drink water? Oh. To, water, uh, two minutes pause? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah. You can drink water and all. And speaking of your book, Transformative Power of 10 Minutes, can you, what, do, what, what practices do you suggest in those 10 minutes <laughs> understanding the power of 10 minutes <laughs> that's a loaded question uh, um you know let me let me share something that, that comes to mind sure and and the idea of you know the, the idea of 10 minutes and how does that even how is that even really helpful right i mean and and one of the things that i was thinking about when i when I was writing this book is that I was in physical therapy at the time. And I've been in physical therapy a number of times. I'm, I'm pretty athletic and I end up getting little injuries and so forth. And, and so you go to physical therapy and they give you these exercises to do that take maybe, you know, 10 minutes to do. You're supposed to do them every day. But one of the most helpful things that my physical therapist said to me at the time was, you know, it's not just about doing those exercises for 10 minutes, but then really paying attention to how you're moving and walking throughout the day so that you're getting the right muscles to fire, you know, in the right patterns or so forth, even just in simple walking motion, that you really start to pay attention to how you're, you're moving in, in a different kind of way. So bringing those exercises off of the mat and into just my simple, ordinary moments of my life. And so I think of the exercises in, in that book in a similar kind of a way that it's really about taking a few minutes to, to practice something, to get an idea of, oh, okay, this is, this is, you know, how I can use this tool. And I'll, I'll share an example in a second. And then how do we really just try to carry that tool into as many moments of our life in our day as we can remember? So one of the, the tools actually that I talk about in my, my last book, I call it the flashlight, but it's also embedded very much into the first book, The Transformative Power of 10 Minutes, is really just learning how to bring mindful awareness into moments of our life. And so, you know, if you imagine that you're trying to walk uh, from point A to point B in a pitch black room, and there's furniture and so forth. You, you would imagine you're going to be tripping over things. You're going to be stumbling. It's going to be really hard. 
But if somebody hands you a flashlight, suddenly the room is illuminated and you the, the obstacles don't go away, but you can navigate with greater ease. And so the idea of the flashlight is really beginning to see our own thoughts, our own emotions, what's happening emotionally in my body, what physically, what am I experiencing in my body? And as we begin to pay attention to these things, we can then use that awareness to help guide us. You know, so, so in the first chapter, which really is trying to cultivate this kind of awareness, I'll have people do things like just, I forget exactly, but you know, roughly one day might be just go imagine going through the day with the flashlight and noticing what physical sensations are present in your body. You know, maybe in the morning, stopping for a few minutes in the afternoon and in the evening and really just pausing and noticing like, what am I feeling in my body? Because we often are so cut off from our bodies. We live in our heads so much. And then the next day, you might start to notice what's happening. You know, can I pause in the morning and just check in with myself and say, okay, what, what emotions are present? You know, am I, am I feeling worried? Am I feeling happy? Am I feeling frustrated about something? And do this a few times throughout the day. And then another day go through and notice, you know, stopping and say, what, whoa, what are those thoughts? What is it that I'm saying to myself? What does that inner dialogue actually sound like right now in this moment? So we begin to pay attention in a different kind of a way. And in, in that book, it's very much a workbook style. So I have worksheets where you can actually, you know, keep track and write down things that you notice each day. And there's also audio meditations that go along with it. So, so many of the exercises involve some kind of guided meditation. And, and a lot of it is really just about raising our awareness and noticing some of these conditioned habits that we have. Um, so that's any one, one example. I can certainly talk about others. And uh, and this is I, I I love it actually. What you just mentioned that flashlight about the concept of flashlight. And awareness, mindfulness serves as a flashlight. And our obstacle doesn't go away. It is there, getting from point A to point B. But when we have those mindfulness, awareness, flashlight, we can see those obstacles and work through it. Yeah. And mindfulness will not make the life easier, actually. <laughs> it won't make it any easier. But we can deal with the situations and our emotions in a better, yeah. compassionate, kind, non-judgmental way. And Beth, why did you read this book? Or any of well, your book? <laughs> oh, okay. So an interesting interesting um, and fun fun little story that I have around this. So let's see. When my daughter went, went off to college, she just left for the semester of college, my, my oldest child, and, and there was a particular day that I remember I was upgrading my phone. And for whatever reason, in this upgrade, I had completely lost all of the contacts on my phone. All these contacts I had for so many years of all these people. And, and I was just kind of like I had this moment where I was really distraught and I couldn't believe I had done this. And, and I also couldn't believe that I hadn't backed up my phone 
so it just felt like a real disaster in the moment. But out of that, it, it prompted me to ask this question of, you know, what else is important to me that I might want to make sure I have a backup copy of? And so and this is kind of a, a long, long-winded answer to your question, but it will get there. So I found, well, I, I knew that I had in my closet this bag of poetry that I had written. And this is poems that I had written since, since I was a young child. And I would just write these poems on a little scrap piece of paper and stuff them into this bag. And so I have this bag that's now bursting with just all these scraps of paper. And so I decided that I, I better scan all of these poems into, you know, up onto my computer so that I could save them. And in the process of doing that, I put them in chronological order. And when I did that, it was like, wow, this actually told this whole autobiography of my life through poetry. And so I had created this book, which I haven't yet published, but is, is still sitting, you know, someday to be published. But I, and then it was like, wow, you know, I just created this book. That was kind of fun. And then shortly after that, I had put together the contents for an eight-week group on reducing stress. And I was all excited about teaching this group. And unfortunately, I found out, kind of to my surprise, that I was not going to be able to run this group. And so I initially, I had this disappointment. But then it occurred to me that I already had all of the contents of what could really turn into a book. And so I basically used that and and turned it into my first book. And so that was kind of a really yeah. uh, <laughs> and coming, serendipitous way that all of that evolved. Yeah. Coming it's, it's back to like, those poems, does any favorite poem of yours or any from any other author comes to your mind that inspires you? Uh, favorite poem. poems. Yeah. That, that, that inspires you or from, from any other author or any of yours? Oh gosh. I mean, I, I love, you know, some of the, the poetry of Rumi and Mary Oliver. I, I don't have those in front of me to quote. I mean, there's, yeah, so many beautiful and amazing poets out there. I'm certainly happy to share, you know, any of my poems as well. Yes. I feel like for me, the, the poetry writing has been kind of an exercise in mindfulness, really. I feel like from, from, from a young child, before I knew about mindfulness, the writing was really a way for me just to show up and be really present with whatever was happening in that moment, whether it was some beautiful thing in nature I noticed or just feeling really sad and not knowing how to express that. And so it became this way for me to sit and be with whatever that experience was and put it into words. So that's kind of how my poetry has evolved. But I, I have, yeah, found it really helpful for me just to often sitting with difficulties and being, being able to give good voice to that experience. Uh, do you have do you have any other yeah, practice so in your life to reduce or deal with the stress or anxiety? So, favorite practices for helping? Yeah, with the stress and anxiety. Anxiety. Yeah. I have a lot of different ones, you know, different tools <laughs> in my toolbox that I try at different times. So, so one is, is really simple, and I found that I've been using this one a lot. And, and so it's, it's really just taking a mindful pause. And I think when, certainly for myself, when I can remember to take a mindful pause, you know, when I can see stress or anxiety building, if I can catch it when it's first starting, 
and being able to just place one hand on my heart or, you know, over my heart and one hand on my abdomen and to really feel the rise and fall of the breath and to bring my focus to that experience of just breathing in and breathing out. And then I might take, you know, two or three minutes. And after I kind of take this moment just to center myself, then I try to just notice from this place of what is happening in my body. So noticing physical sensations that are present and just kind of naming them, you know, uh, the t tightness in my shoulders, you know, that kind of thing, pressure in my chest, and then being able to notice thoughts that may be going through my mind, you know, worried about the future, the worry thoughts, and being able to label that, and then just naming emotions that are present, you know, so that I, I see that fear is present. I see that anxiety is present. And just imagining that I could hold a space for all of that, to just allow whatever's there to be there, but to hold it in this, you know, compassionate way, trying to send, send myself some compassion that hand on the heart really helps with that and just taking a few minutes of really slowing down and stepping out of my habitual response of flying off the handle or just spiraling into a more anxious state or whatnot yeah in fact I, we were talking about poetry a moment ago but i can share a poem that i wrote with you uh, yes. about that's called pausing let's see if i can find it and so I, I actually, I wrote this poem as a reminder to myself in one of my, and I mentioned to you, you know, I'm type A, I tend to, so one of my habitual patterns is that I can just go through my day and feel like, God, I've got to get all this stuff accomplished. Or, you know, oh my God, it's 11 o'clock, I've hardly gotten anything done yet. You know, and so if I'm not careful, I can, I can carry this pressure with me as if I'm, you know, just got to be doing achieving and accomplishing and so forth. And so I wrote this poem called Pausing, which is really a reminder to myself of, of the preciousness of the pause. So if you'd like, I can share that. Please. Yeah, okay. Pausing. Pausing to feel my breath, to feel the rhythm of my breath, my constant companion, so often ignored. Pausing long enough to hear the life force flowing in and out through nostrils, mouth. The bed, half-made, calls to me to complete it, and the emails, and laundry, and I feel beckoned, but let this moment envelop me, just long enough to feel the sunlight on my face, to see the leaf dangling, hear the urgency of the wind above my own urgency. In the pause, I realize, is everything. It is my daughter's longing glance for connection. The opening my son needs to be heard. The invitation for intimacy, creativity, joy. The space in which what really matters shows up, like a hidden treasure waiting to be discovered. The gym bag is waiting, bed still unmade. I pause long enough to savor the open feeling in my heart, then move on, eyes open, into the callings of the day. Thank you. You're welcome. Before I ask you my last question for this conversation, I would like to ask you 
do you have any advice for our listeners to live a happy and fulfilled life? Oh boy, <laughs> that's a big question. Some yeah. nuggets, if we can share. Hmm. Let's see. I want to answer that. You know, I think that there's no one size fits all. I think that everybody needs to find, you know, their own path and it can look a lot of different ways. But I think a few things stand out for me that can be helpful, at least that certainly have been helpful in my life. And one is working on cultivating greater awareness as we move through the moments of our life so that we can notice when we get stuck in some of these old condition patterns and, and, and habits that may take us away from, you know, what's, what's here, what's now. I think finding a way of holding the preciousness of this moment of really looking for the, the, the joys that are here, connecting in with, with, with gratitude, connecting in with the presence of this moment so that we are not just again caught kind of in that automatic pilot, but at the same time also being able to hold all of our emotions in a compassionate way and, and working to find whatever ways might help people to do that. I think that when we can do those things and, and the, the last piece I would add is really connecting in with what is most meaningful and important. This question of what really matters to me, you know, how do I want to show up today? Who do I want to be? And what is most deeply important to me as I move through my day? So when we can connect in with all of those things, I think that it can become a, a guidepost on this journey towards well-being. Yeah. And I would like to ask you my last question that what is the impact you want to have on this world? Can you, can you what is the impact you want to have on this world? The, the impact, impact that yeah. I want that that I want to have? Yeah. Oh, wow. Hmm. You know, so so what comes to mind is a quote that I remember hearing when I was in high school. It was during a sermon that our rabbi was giving at the time and I know, you know, most people at my age kind of tuning tuning out to those things, I think. But but I remember that he said something that really struck me. And it was a quote by William James, who, as it turns out, is, is sort of one of the founders of, you know, American psychology. And and the quote is that, and I hope I'm, I may be not quite sure if I have this exactly, but um, the greatest, let's see, actually, I think I wrote it down. So let me see if I can find it just so I can share this accurately. Not sure if I don't have it. I'll, I'll try to paraphrase here, but something like the greatest use of a, of a life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. And so I guess just in terms of my having an impact, I hope that the things that I do in my day, whether just the, you know, the, the little, the little things in my day, as well as, you know, my, my sharing my own story, my own journey, um, working with my patients, putting my writing out into the world, which is kind of a scary and vulnerable process. My, my hope is that all of that will somehow make a difference 
in, you know, even if it just touches one person's life in some way, I, I feel like my, my life's journey will have been worth it. Well, thank you, Beth, for all this amazing wisdom and practices, tools, and resources for our listeners. And I'm sure people will definitely learn a lot from this conversation and they will be able to apply so many things in their personal and professional life to deal with their emotions and feelings. So thank you again and welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. I hope you learned from this episode that you can apply in your life. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to the podcast, The Nishan Garg Show on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe to the show through my website, https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this podcast with your family and friends or whoever want to feel fulfilled. And thank you so much again. Please note that information shared by Dr. Beth is for educational purposes only and is not intended in any way as psychological treatment, advice or consultation of any kind. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek the treatment of a licensed mental health professional. And thank you again.